You're listening to This Rhetorical Life, a podcast dedicated to the practice, pedagogy, and public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. Hi everyone, this is Allison Hitt, and today's episode addresses anti-racist pedagogies and how we can talk about racism productively with students in the classroom, particularly when students may feel defensive about these issues. It's important to have these discussions though, as difficult as they may be, in light of ongoing reports of microaggressions and explicit racial violence. We watched with horror the video of Eric Gardner repeating, I can't breathe, as police officers held his body down until lifeless on a New York City sidewalk. We learned of the death of Trayvon Martin, an unarmed African-American boy killed in Sanford, Florida, while in possession of Skittles and iced tea. And we learned of Michael Brown, the unarmed African-American man shot and killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri. There have since been more reported cases of unarmed people of color killed by police. As educators, we ought to discuss issues of racism and structural inequality in our classes. But how do we do this in a way that makes a difference? According to Jennifer Trainer, author of Rethinking Racism, Emotion, Persuasion, and Literacy Education in an All-White High School, you may be well-intentioned in discussing racism in the classroom, but it can backfire and solidify students' perspectives on issues even more than previously. In class conversations about racism, we will likely hear students make racist comments. And as teachers, we often tend to see such racist comments in isolated moments and respond, in our minds at least, with judgment. But Dr. Trainer argues that we need to read deeper into the racist comments students make in the classroom to try to understand why they're saying what they're saying. Here's what Dr. Trainer has to say about that. It's easy to see the isolated moments, and it's powerful, I think, for us to see them because they are maddening and frustrating, and they stand out. But if you look at students' talk over time and in context, they are much more uneven in their ideas than they are in those isolated moments, which then makes it much more complicated to address, but also, I think, makes it sort of less of a problem because you can see that these are young people in process, and they are not coming out of a strict ideological place where all of their ideas are in order and they all point toward racism. That is not actually usually the case with you know the, the students in the study that I did and the students that I have in freshman writing classes that are just you know a few months older. There's an unevenness and um, a complexity to what students will say about issues of race depending on the context that they're in, depending on what's on their mind, depending on the memories and things that they're working with. But I think it helps us get at what they're actually about when it comes to race. So for me that was really important. I started the research really struggling to understand how seemingly good people could say such awful things. And that was really what I wanted to understand. And I think what I found is that people are not all one thing or another. Um, they aren't as awful as they seem in a particular moment. Our students are struggling, I think, to make sense of the world. Next, we asked Dr. Trainer to discuss some of the current approaches to addressing racism in the classroom. She starts here by explaining the issues with multiculturalism. 
There's a lot of things wrong with multiculturalism, especially in K-12 education. It's often presented as this sort of benign melting pot where all the same inside, leading, to, leading students to conclude that not seeing race is the best strategy and not acknowledging difference is the best strategy. We're all the same inside. In the book, you'll see students saying things like, well, we're all the same inside, so my Angelou suffered racism, well, I've suffered too. I'm a white person, I've suffered, we're all the same, we all suffer, right? Which then, you know, obviously negates history and the lived experiences of people of color. So that's one kind of obvious problem with multiculturalism. I also think that whether this is in the multicultural texts that are being taught or it's in the way they're taught or it's in the students' perceptions of the text, they tend to dichotomize Racism happens because there are evil people in the past or somewhere in the Ku Klux Klan today in the South, I don't know, somewhere else that are causing all these problems and it's not something that we have to grapple with ourselves in our current place. We're not racist, it's somewhere else. I think students maybe perceive it, I don't know if it's actually in the text, but there's a perception that there's, a, there's good and bad and I'm good and that was bad and don't have to worry about it. Since I'm not evil, I'm not racist, no problem. A third problem, and I think this kind of actually goes in the opposite direction of what I just said, which makes it more complicated, is that when you do start to try to push on the idea that we all live in a racist system and we all partake in racist systems and as white people get benefits from racism, when you take that kind of whiteness studies approach or white privilege approach, you also run into the problem that goes in a slightly different direction, which is the whiteness studies will paint an opposite picture of students as, as completely in possession of privilege. The, the knapsack thing, I think, is the best example of this. Privilege is a knapsack, of, an invisible knapsack of benefits that white people carry around and use all the time. but most white people don't feel like they have a backpack. I mean, that just isn't how people live their life. You have to work really hard to become conscious of your privilege. And even when you are conscious of your privilege and you know that you have a backpack on, there's not much you can do about it. For students, when they're you know young people, I, I want to know, well, how am I going to change this? And I've had students in college say things like, well, am I supposed to just not be in college because our system of, of admissions is racist and classist? I should just go home. Well, no, <laughs> you know, but they want to be able to say, I'm taking action. And I think the knapsack stuff and the white privilege stuff makes them feel more guilty than is useful, more ashamed than is useful. It gets at emotions that lead more to defensiveness and you know, just a turning away because there's nothing that can be done. You know, hear students say, there's always been these problems. It's always been the way it is. There's nothing we can do. So that's not what you want either. So I think almost all of those approaches are really not easy to pull off and do well for these reasons. They risk missing what's really going on. Now you're going to ask me, well, what do we do? <laughs> and I don't have a straightforward or easy answer for that. In the course of doing the research, since I did the research and started doing the analysis for the book, one of the things that I have become interested in is students that are kind of hyper defensive about these issues and what motivates that. So this didn't come up in the book. But in college, I was teaching at Santa Clara for a few years, you get students who are really invested in not facing injustice of any kind in our society. They're really conservative or they really believe in meritocracy and individualism and they get very defensive. So when trying to think about why that is, and this goes back to the pedagogies, I think one of the things that happens with those students is they are new to the university. Usually when I have them, they're freshmen, they're brand new, it's a time of flux and their identities don't feel very solid to them and this does not help. Their, their defensiveness is an effort to kind of solidify their identity. So one of the things I've been doing in the classroom with those students or when I was at Santa Clara is to actually try to make them feel 
good about who they are before we start questioning the systems of injustice that we're all mired in, which I think is a little bit counterintuitive. I've done activities where I'll ask students to identify the value that underlies their opinion about an issue. So if we do something like tracking in school and how tracking ends up being raced and classed in its outcomes almost every time when the research doesn't support it as a pedagogical practice and students will get really defensive and they'll they really believe in this I was in the high classes and I'm telling you they're better and not everybody can do those classes and really believe in it get very defensive so what I've tried to get students to do is identify the belief that underlies their opinion that tracking is good and the belief will be something like we should reward hard work or we should reward people who try in school by giving them better classes this is kind of innocuous to me as a belief. Like, this is not something I feel like I need to worry about. A student who believes in rewarding hard work is not a problem for me. So I try to get them to see that that value is part of their identity, but the opinions that come out of that value are not necessarily on very solid ground. So then we go to, well, what does the research actually say on tracking? Can you hold the value while letting go of the opinion? And I think that is identity work for these students. That's about not having to say I have to leave college because the system is unfair and I got here on, on, out of unfairness. Giving them a sense that their identity can stay intact, which is I think the opposite of what the whiteness studies wants to do. We want to break down racism, be a race traitor, break down whiteness. Instead say your identity is fine. This is more an allies approach and you can actually start to work for change by being who you are. Right? And you don't have to get rid of your knapsack. We don't even have to talk about your knapsack. There's nothing you can do about that. You're not going to leave college. You're not going to sell your car and give the money to the poor. I'm not asking you to do that. I can't, <laughs> you know, it might be a good thing to do. We could talk about it, but I'm not going to say yes, that's what you should. I mean, where does this go? When in the logic of it, you know, in terms of that knapsack, getting rid of it. So forget the knapsack. What are you going to do tomorrow in terms of who you are and the way you live your life that promotes justice. And that I think is a much easier thing for students to, especially when promoting justice can be as simple as listening or reading some research or finding out some truths that aren't always available in our general discourse about race or individualism. And I think that I've had more success with that, especially with those students who are most defensive and most sort of caught up in defending the status quo helping them basically see that they don't have to change who they are. That's how I've worked with white students, along with making space for emotions and making it clear that this is hard work and it's emotional work and it's fine to be upset and I'm here if you want to talk about how upset you are and really making sure that they don't feel like I'm attacking them or judging them, which is not easy because what they say is sometimes very judgeworthy. Um, but I try to make it clear that I'm withholding judgment and I'm really here to listen and support them as they encounter ideas that are upsetting to them. In this next segment, Dr. Trainer discusses the place of anti-racist pedagogies and whiteness studies. The good thing about them is that they create a space to say that anti-racism is an important goal of our teaching and that it's a specific thing and that it's it has connections to people's identities. So, you know, if you're dealing with an all-white audience, then you're gonna, you can address that by saying this is whiteness and, you know, I mean, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it opened up a space for an anti-racist pedagogical approach, whichever approach that actually ended up being, it at least it led to experimentation and to trying to identify um, how people, how white people responded to these kinds of things, what their actual needs and beliefs and problems were. 
it, it made us go forward, I think. Otherwise, you know, we were, I don't know where we were before that, just multiculturalism, I guess, and everybody's all going to get along. And so it, I think it was, it was very useful for that, for that opening up of pedagogical space to say anti-racism has got to be part of the goal. And that if you're talking about developing an anti-racist consciousness, you're talking about white people. I mean, you know, I don't want to, I, I can't really get into different ways that people of color are positioned around issues of race and, and anti-racism, but presumably racism is something that people empower. <laughs> so you assume that. And so if you're going to say, well, we want to have an anti-racist pedagogy, you're talking about teaching white people. So you've already kind of isolated whiteness as some as a something that you need to investigate and understand. I think that, you know, there's work to be done. Jennifer Trainer opens up a complex conversation around models of teaching white students about racism. How do we approach these topics without making students defensive? How do we teach students to become allies instead of sinking deeper into ingrained structures and ideologies of racism and instead of acting on guilt? We would like to thank Jennifer Trainer, author of Rethinking Racism, Emotion, Persuasion, and Literacy Education in an All-White High School and associate professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at San Francisco State University. We also want to thank Tamar Isak for conducting this interview and helping frame this episode. And thank you all for listening. This Rhetorical Life is brought to you by graduate students in the Composition and Cultural Rhetoric program at Syracuse University. Co-executive producers of This Rhetorical Life are Ben Kiebrick and Allison Hitt, with additional production by Tamara Isak, Carrie Ann Soto, and Jana Rosinski.